seat and getting ready. Uh, two announcements. First of all, we're having a deacons meeting this Saturday morning at 9 o'clock. The second thing is, for all of you who are not watching weather reports because you're staying away from the news, which is a good thing, Houston is now dead center in the cone of uncertainty for this tropical system that's on the other side of the Yucatan, and it might hit here. If, if it stays on course and it hits here, it'll be Tuesday night. So there's a chance we may not have Bible class on Tuesday night. So stay tuned. Keep your radios going. Go out and buy batteries. Go out and buy uh, some ice to put in your ice chest just in case. Go buy a generator real quick first thing in the morning or whatever other uh, uh, things you think you need to do in order to get ready for, for a storm. We, we know how these things can go here in southeast Texas. <clears throat> Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get into our study this evening, we need to make sure that we are walking by the Holy Spirit, which means that if necessary, we need to confess sin. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that if necessary, you can confess sins to the Lord and make sure you are walking with him. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we can come together this evening to focus upon you and your word and what it teaches us about culture, about government, about uh, the principles and values that undergird the system of law and government that we have in this nation, and that that is only, as our founding fathers observed, it will only really work if it's a moral nation, and by that we mean a nation that is under undergirded by understanding the principles of your word. And we know that this nation no longer does that. And the vast majority here are enemies of the cross, enemies of God. Even those who claim to be Christians are way off base. And Father, we know that we may go through a time of national discipline and judgment. But Father, we pray that we might be steadfast witnesses and not get, become distracted, not become emotionally despondent or upset over the direction things go because this has happened to nations before, to believers before, and we know you will provide for us and take care of us, and we know that uh, we'll have great opportunities to be a witness to the eternal truths of your word and to the gospel, and we pray that we might focus on these things with a positive mental attitude 
and that we will have our focus on the cross and your plan and not on our plans and our desires. And Father, we pray as we study tonight, we'll gain some insight into the role that you have designated for government. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, if you are going to open your Bibles to a passage, open them to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. We'll get there eventually. So tonight we're continuing our study of the fourth divine institution. And this is on government. That these ideas that we have present, that we have been studying under the category of divine institutions... Uh, have not originated with me. They didn't originate in the 20th century. They didn't come out of the Republican Party. They didn't come out of the Constitution. They were uh, articulated in one form or another through the Protestant Reformation, but they weren't even new then. Uh, They were understood in a lot of Roman Catholic theology and because they are fundamental to God's creation. And they go back to uh, being articulated even in the Old Testament under the Mosaic Law. And so these are not anything new. Uh, Theologically, the organization and systematization of these divine institutions has developed more and more in the last hundred years. And before that, during the Reformation, they were usually referenced as spheres of authority. So to one degree or another, the reality of these uh, divine institutions have been there. They are not uh, there in order to uh, have authority over or oppress some group. In fact, when you understand biblical Christianity, there should be no oppression by the church or by Christians of, of any other people. And the reason I say that is because someone who's a very faithful listener and uh, uh, a regular tender of this church had uh, someone in his family listen to it and just absolutely th- accused me of everything from racism to, uh, you know, the most extreme forms of nationalism and everything else. And that just unfortunately reflects somebody who has whose thinking has been so shaped by the propaganda in the schools that uh, young people today have not learned an objective view of American history. An objective view is not one that paints everything as rosy or good, but neither does it paint everything as, as bad. If America were as bad as leftists say it is, why can't they answer the question, why do so many people want to come here? If America is this oppressive, hateful country, why does anybody want to try to come in here, swim across the Rio Grande, uh, get it, come across in vans where there's no air conditioning or anything like that, uh, pay enormous amounts of money to these coyotes to bring them across the border if America is this hateful, horrible place filled with uh, racists and those that that just hate everybody. And the fact that you have so many coming across the border gives the lie to all of these caricatures of America. They are typical. If you understand history and you've looked at revolutions that occurred in history from the French Revolution to the 
uh, Bolshevik Revolution to the Chinese Revolution, then what you see, and there are many other similar revolutions in smaller places in smaller countries, African countries and South American countries, then th those revolutions are all about power. They're all about removing power from a perceived horrible group that is often painted in these stark terms of harsh contrast as uh, just out for themselves and feathering their own nest and making their uh, piles of money. And in many cases, that was true, but it's not true in this country. Uh, to a large degree, there are some who are doing that because there are, there's more and more corruption in this country as this country gets further and further away uh, from, from the word of God. Uh, but uh, but what you have to understand is that that this country was founded on the principle of, of giving people opportunity. And you can either have equal opportunity or you can have equal results, but you can't have both. It's impossible. And it's better to have equal opportunity because it gives everybody responsibility for their own lives. That's the first divine institution that we study gives them the ability and the encouragement and the opportunity to go forward, to make something of themselves, to come here from some country where they have been oppressed, where they have been restrained, where they have been maybe even uh, slavery or something close to it, and then they come here and they can find a job, they can work hard, they can get two jobs, three jobs, Many of these stories have been told over the years. Thousands upon thousands of people have followed this path. And that first generation struggles and struggles, but they learn what it means to be an American. And what it means to be an American in the historical sense is ultimately somebody who thinks a certain way. And that thinking is defined by what we've been studying. First of all, we studied a Judeo-Christian worldview. And it doesn't work, absolutely does not work if you don't have a nation of people who are thinking within a Judeo-Christian uh, worldview because if you're going to give people responsibility as God gave Adam and Eve in the garden and he gave them freedom and yet there's no unlimited freedom. Freedom always has to be limited by ethics by a morality, and even in the perfect condition of the garden, it was limited by one prohibition, that they could not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they did, it destroyed absolutely everything. But see, there's now something within the sinful, corrupt nature of every human being that just wants to be free of any restraint, uh, wants to be free of restraint from... Uh, moral obligations, from ethical obligations, free from uh, responsibility to one's uh, family, to one's spouse, uh, obligations to one's, to one's country. And when you get people who want to live irresponsibly, then what they are doing is they are living immorally. And this is why John Adams said that this requires a moral people because they have to live within a framework of a consistent, absolute, ethical system grounded on something that is beyond just the will of the people or what everybody seems to think is right or what everybody seems to like 
or what seems to be popular, it has to be grounded in something that has an eternal foundation. And when we as Christians look at the scripture, we recognize that foundation is God's righteousness. And we all fall short of that. That's what the scripture says over and over again. We fail to measure up to God's righteousness, every single one of us. There are some sins that we like and that we are attracted to, uh, but we know not to engage in those sins because they are both self-destructive as well as they have they further corrupt society and they have damaging effects even if we can't identify direct lines of cause and effect they have damaging effects on a culture just because you're breaking down that concept of ethics that as long as there's a fence up that everything can work well within the boundaries of that ethical or moral fence. But once the fence goes down, then it opens the door to all sor- sorts of evil. And so we live in a world today that is that wants uh, uh, wants to get away from that. It's antinomianism, which means it's just, let's just do whatever we want to. There are no absolutes. We're going to change all of these foundations. And that's why we're studying them, is because we've lost this in our culture. We've lost this in it's not taught in the schools. It's not taught in the homes. It's uh, rarely taught in the churches. In fact, I've frequently talked to people who say, well, I've never heard this before. People, most of you have heard this many times in a lot of different ways from several different pastors. But there are so many Christians out there who have grown up in Christian contexts in churches that are, are fairly solid, but they've never been thought, taught how to think within a biblical framework like this. And, and it really opens the door to, for them to understand things. I was talking with um, Tommy Ice about this when, when we first started this, this study. And uh, Tommy made the observation that when he was a liberal Democrat, back when he was about 21 or 22 years of age, or 23, and he... Uh, first listened to some tapes from a guy named Charlie Clough on the Divine Institutions. He listened to Clough on the Divine Institutions for three or four lessons and immediately became a conservative Republican. <laughs> See, truth changes the way you live because all, it opens the door to understanding reality. And one of those Divine Institutions that we're studying, we've gone through individual freedom individual responsibility to marriage and then to uh, th- then to family. Now we're looking at this fourth divine institution, which is human government. Now, I've heard some Christians, some believers, some believers whom I respect make, make negative comments about government. Government is not inherently evil. There's nothing wrong with government. As we saw last time, there will be a future government, and when the Lord Jesus Christ comes. So if government per se is evil, then we're going to have a problem in the millennial kingdom because the government is going to be on the shoulders of the perfect Messiah. Government is evil only because the people who are governing can be evil. But laws and a country and a culture that teaches that teaches morality and ethics into his the children so they grow up with this sense of right and wrong 
then that country can produce leaders that will resist corruption and will resist uh, the the temptations to power and to money and to bribery in one form or another. I've heard of one congressman uh, who was elected not too long ago from this area and is not in Congress anymore, and he went from a net worth of about $500,000 when he was elected to Congress, and now he has a net worth of about five or six million. How does that happen? We look at a president that we just had that has now left office, and he was worth uh, not much more than half a million to a million when he went into the White House, and he's now worth uh, well over 10 or $20 million. How does that happen? This is not right. When Harry Truman, a Democrat, left office, he didn't have an entourage to carry him home. He didn't have first-class accommodations on the way home. He rode on the train. He went by himself, he and his wife, Bess, and they went back to Independence, Missouri, got off the train, were picked up at the train station, taken to their home, no secret service, no entourage, and he just went back to being a private citizen. That is the standard. We have a citizen-oriented government, or should have, but now we have people in government who see it as a career. We're glad that some of them serve many decades because they have good ideas and they're grounded in the Bible. And But there are others who are just the opposite, and they have used this as a way to... Uh, just strengthen their own political power, and that is nothing less than evil. So we're continuing tonight looking at government. We looked at the beginnings of it last time as part of our study on the foundations of social order, and the Bible recognizes that there are certain foundations, social foundations, that if they're destroyed, then what will the righteous do? How, How will we have a government? How will we have stability? How will we have peace? How will we be able to accomplish anything? And I've, I changed the slide, updated it, as I've been thinking about it. The first category, those three I just mentioned, individual responsibility, marriage, and family, these were all designed for perfect environment to provide a scenario where there could be uh, prosperity, where it would promote pr- productivity, teamwork, to be able to go out and accomplish God's goal of of ruling over this planet that God had created for mankind. But because of sin, and we trace this as we went through through the history, that, that the sin increased because there was no institution established after the fall to restrain human sin other than one's own conscience. That's why dispensationalists call this the dispensation of hu- the human conscience. And so God gives us three pictures, three snapshots of what was going on between Adam and Noah. And they're, they're horrific. You have Cain killing his brother Abel. You have Lamech, who is the first to have two wives, to have polygamy. And then he murders a man and brags about it. And then the next picture we have is of this just, just overt... Uh, sexual orgies that are occurring 
and the and the and God describes it as evil was in their heart and and they just did evil continually and this is the generation just prior to the flood and so God is going to provide protection that comes from uh, taking Noah and his wife and their three sons and their three wives, and they are going to start reboot civilization, reboot humanity uh, because of all of the sin. And this time around, God is going to institute government. And so that's, that's the framework. So remember, all of these divine institutions are absolute social structures. So this shows the connection between uh, social laws and physical or economic laws because if the social structure breaks down marriage family government if that social structure breaks down then you're going to have rampant evil so there is a connection and the reason I say that I was asked a question about that uh, via the internet the other day and the reason I say that is because there are some, and I, usually they are inclined towards being libertarians, who think that you can be socially liberal. We're going to allow homosexuality. We want to legalize all drugs. We want to legalize prostitution. And we want to be socially liberal and economically conservative. But that doesn't work, not at all, because once you start allowing all of these other things to happen. And part of that would be um, no-fault divorce, and that came along. And what this happens is people are divorcing all over the place, and it destroys families, and it destroys wealth, and it destroys productivity, and has a horrible consequence on the economy of the nation. So these are absolute social structures designed by God for the perpetuation, uh, preservation, protection, and prosperity of the human race. Benjamin Franklin observed, man will ultimately be governed by God or by tyrants. Those are the alternatives. Now, there's always a generation that comes along and says, well, we can find a middle answer. Well, people have been trying for about 6,000 years, and there is no middle road. It always goes to either tyranny or obedience to God. But we can't escape uh, some authority over us because authority is even part of, and we've studied this many times, it's part of the makeup of the triune God. The Father has authority over the Son. The Son said, I can't do anything unless the Father gives me permission. The Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. And so there is an authority distinction and role distinction within the Godhead, but each member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are absolutely equal, totally equal with one another in their person. One is not inherently better or worse than the other two. But there is, a, there has to be this role distinction and authority distinction to accomplish things. And what was the first sin? The first sin is the sin of Lucifer, and it's a rebellion against divine authority. This is why the Bible stresses authority and submission to authority over and over and over again. So last time, as we trace things through, we saw that what the Bible recognizes is the problem is sin. 
It's not human systems of education. It's nothing in the environment. By environment, I'm not talking about global warming or pollution. It's nothing in, in the environment. It's not education. It's not social structure. It's not financial. It's not that you're born in poverty and or you're born with wealth. There are many people who are born with wealth and absolutely have no capacity for it and destroy, destroy themselves and lose everything they had. And there are many people born in poverty who work hard and rise above it and they get educated and they do extremely well and in some cases make uh, millions of dollars because they have the opportunity to do so and they should not be limited by government. That's one problem we've had for the last hundred years is government wanting to come in and get its share of the prosperity pie and that always hurts. Psalm 14.2 says that uh, the Lord looks down from heaven to see if there are any who understand, and there are none. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So government's role is to protect the citizens from the destructive sins of, of criminality. The, the government's job is not to protect us from all sin. No government could do that but to protect us from certain sins that destroy freedom and destroy liberty and uh, destroy uh, property. And this is embedded, as we saw last time, in the Noahic Covenant when God, for the first time, delegated judicial responsibility to man by giving him the authority to take human life in the case of capital crimes. And that then becomes... Uh, the foundation for the future. And this is embedded when God writes a law and a constitution for the nation Israel, you have several things that are worthy of capital uh, punishment. Uh, blasphemy against God, idolatry, adultery, uh, because these attack, at the base, attack the basic foundations. Uh, murder, um, all of these are, are are significant, and so you have a model there. The Mosaic Law is not a law that should be picked up as a constitution and transferred to any other country or any other people because it was never designed for that. It, what, no Gentile was ever responsible for it. Nobody else was ever responsible for it, and that's interesting. Next week when we get into nationalism, we will discover that this is part of the rationale for why God established nations. And he gives the law to Israel and not to anybody else. He gives a piece of real estate with specific borders to Israel, not to anybody else. And they are not to go over and impose their law or impose their rule on anybody else. They are an autonomous nation, and they are to respect the autonomy of other nations, not the nations that were in the land of Canaan. Those there were specific nations that God uh, ordered them to annihilate because of their extended perversion, corruption, and rebellion against God. God had given them over 400 years to change their mind. But uh, other nations that surrounded them, they were not to get, go on their land. They weren't to take stuff from them. They weren't to fight them. They were to just take care of the, the ones. So that's one example. God supports nations and national distinctions. In Deuteronomy, 
as part of the law, God said, Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore be careful to observe them. This is your wisdom and understanding in the sight of peoples uh, who will hear all of these statutes. And that is an example to others, those who are following the word of God. One of the greatest books ever written about the early American uh, uh, Republic was by Alex Alex de Tocqueville. And Tocqueville wrote this, and he said, everybody there's a Christian. Everybody goes to church. Everybody follows these, these standards. Everybody has a Bible. Everybody reads their Bible. That was what made America great. That's what made, gave America that foundation for, for prosperity. And they weren't perfect. Not everybody was right. There were people who were atheists. There were people who rejected God. There were people who were criminals. There were people who owned slaves and abused and maltreated their slaves. There were all kinds of blemishes and sins. But as a whole, it was a nation who wanted to look to the standard of righteousness and reach for it uh, rather than to look to what other people had and reach for that. And that's what we're seeing today. We also saw last time the problem of too little government in judges, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and it led to just anarchy. That's where we are as a nation. And then we uh, looked at the passages in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8 where they talked about too much government. We'll come back and look at that a little later on. But the foundational passage in the New Testament, you don't need to turn there because I have it on the screen, is in Romans chapter 13. And, well, if you do want to turn there, look at Romans 12. I don't remember when I taught Romans that when I got to Romans 13, of course, we were going through verse by verse, if I located this within the immediate context. Of course, you all know that uh, the, the chapters in the Bible were not added until uh, much, much later in the Middle Ages, and the verses then were not added until the period just after the, uh, just after the Reformation. But look at the end of Romans chapter 12. The end of Romans chapter 12, and we'll just begin in verse verse 17. As Paul is talking about how Christians should behave toward other Christians, he says, repay no one evil for evil. Don't retaliate. Don't get involved in vengeance and vindictiveness. Don't repay evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Focus your attention on that which is good, intrinsically good, that which is valuable, not on that which is which is evil. Don't give in to your sin nature. Verse 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you. See, there's a recognition there that there are some things that happen in our lives that are out of our control. But as much as it depends on us, as much as we can take responsibility, live peaceably with all men. There are some that will attack us. There are some nations that may attack us, in which case things are going to be different. This is not a call for pacifism. This is a call for if possible. But God is fully aware that everybody around us are corrupt, and this may not always be possible to live peaceably with all men. Verse 19, beloved, do not avenge yourselves. This is a real problem. 
people I have discovered as I have uh, lived my life that there are a lot of people who hold grudges for years and they are vindictive and they have mental attitude sins and it destroys their soul. Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give give place to wrath. In other words, give up the wrath for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. You have to turn it over to the Lord and let the Lord handle it and just forget about it. Treat the person in kindness and in grace, reflecting the character of God and not trying to make things right. God will take care of it. Therefore, that means this is a conclusion in light of what Paul just said, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. That's being gracious, being kind to him. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire upon his head. This is from uh, the Old Testament. This is a passage in, uh, in Proverbs. Uh, I think it's Proverbs twenty four twenty nine, and that, that that is based on. Then uh, in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Notice all of that is dealing with how the believer responds to evil. And then it goes right into verse 1 of the next section. You can't really separate these. Uh, it, it shifts, it's shifting to a new topic, but by putting the chapter division there, you lose the connection between the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of, of chapter 13. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. See, he, the problem in 17 to 21 is evil that is coming your way and how you respond to it. And one way in which evil is to be controlled in a nation is government. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. God gives permission for every authority. It may not be the person elected to president or to governor or to the Senate or whatever office that you like or that I like or that we think is is best, but God allows it. God allows it within his permissive will for whatever reason, and we don't understand that sometimes, so we just have to trust the Lord. And he establishes these authorities. There's no authority except for God. And Paul is writing this at a time when one of the uh, most evil psychos has ever been at the head of government, and that's during the time of Nero. And God allowed Nero to rule, and God had allowed Caligula to rule, and God allowed Adolf Hitler and Saddam Hussein and Joseph Stalin, uh, because he is allowing humans the freedom to work out their lives in either obedience or disobedience to him. And in obedience, God will bless, and they'll see the results of blessing. And in disobedience, the history will show that it leads to destruction. And if you look at the history of those who have rejected God in the godless um, communism, Marxism, and all of those countries, it led to absolute enslavement of the population. The Chinese people today are enslaved. The, the uh, Soviets were enslaved. The Russians are uh, just about enslaved uh, the same way. It's just a different form of totalitarianism. And you have the same thing happening in Islamic countries, in, like Iran. You have it happening in various countries in Africa 
where people have no freedom and no liberty whatsoever. Nevertheless, God gives permission to man to do the, make wrong decisions. So they're going to see the consequences. So God allows these authorities, and the authorities that exist, Paul goes on to say, uh, are appointed by God. He wants to make sure you get the point. He's stating that twice the same way there at the beginning of Romans, Romans 13. Now, what I want you to see here just structurally is he let, starts off with this command, let every soul be subject to the governing of par, of party authorities. And then he says, therefore, whoever resists is resisting God. And then he explains it. Why? For rulers are not a terror to good works, for he is a God's minister to you for good. And then we get our second conclusion. Therefore, you must be subject. And why? For because of this, you also pay taxes. And then a third, therefore, render, therefore, that relates to verse 6, all, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Peter says we're to honor the king, even if it's Nero. He, he wrote in the worst period of Nero's reign, and he says honor the king because we have to learn to respect authority even if the person in the authoritative position is not even if that person in that authoritative position is not worthy of respect. We have to learn to respect the office, even if the person is, that's in the office is not respectable. So this is where we are. So Paul says, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment upon themselves. Now, I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 3. We're going to see one example. We're going to look at two examples of obedience or disobedience to authority, rather, where it's legitimate. In Daniel chapter 3, Daniel chapter 3 is the story of Nebuchadnezzar. He is the, thinks of himself, and he's called the king of kings. He has expanded his empire over all of what we think of today as the Middle East. He's conquered everything from Iran all the way to Egypt and everything in between. And he sees himself as the king of kings. And the, the, the purpose of an uh, emperor in this context is to provide what the Bible says only God can provide. And that is peace and security and stability in that nation. He has subjugated numerous peoples. And whatever happens, we'll see more of this next time, whatever happens in history, when you have an empire, whoever is ruling is forcing everybody to do what that person wants. Remember this. When you have empires, there's no diversity. When you have empire... Uh, there, there's no external absolute. The absolute comes from government. Government takes on that, on that particular role. And so they are going to be, the government is going to define that for, for everyone. Uh, for exa example, in the time of the Soviet Union, in the time of the Soviet Union, when they took over the areas that had previously been independent nations at the end of World War II, you had Poland, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Belarus, 
uh, Ukraine. All of those were taken over by the uh, Soviet Union and were forced to to unify under the banner of the Soviet Union. And one of the things they attempted to do was to eradicate all diversity, all anything that was distinctive about being a Lithuanian or a Pole or a Ukrainian was not allowed. You couldn't uh, fly any national flags. You couldn't have any historic, uh, specific, uh, specifically cultural celebrations that were related to those individual people. What happens once you've got a totalitarian government that rejected uh, personal liberties and personal freedom is it destroyed diversity. Everybody had to be the same. Everybody had to think the same. Everybody had to give allegiance to the state. It's this kind of thing that is going on in, in Babylon. And you have Nebuchadnezzar, who now is at the height of his power and the height of his arrogance. And so he has um, has the people build this enormous image of gold, a statue. It's 60 cubits high, which means it's 90 feet high, and it's 9 feet across. And he sets it up in this plain outside of Babylon, and he wants everybody to come. He demands everybody to come and to bow down, swear allegiance to him as the representative of the state and to submit to his authority and to bow down to this idol. And he has basically deified himself. And so he tells them that when the orchestra plays, everybody is supposed to bow down, and this is a sign uh, of loyalty and a sign that they are a loyal citizen. However, there's a problem there, and that is that there are uh, these Jews that have been brought from conquering Israel, and they are living there. They're just sort of a step above being being slaves. And the ones that we're talking about, of course, are Daniel and his and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, otherwise known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so it becomes known to people around them that that they're not bowing down. And the penalty, as we see in verse 6 here, is whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So it's a death penalty. You can either uh, worship the state as God, worship Nebuchadnezzar as God, or uh, or you're going to die. And so many people are going to cave into that. Many people are going to quit thinking their personal lives are more important. If you haven't, if you've doubted that, just think about a lot of things that you have seen in the last six months with this COVID pandemic, how people in this country have acted like a lot of uh, cattle and they've just done whatever anybody says. Now, at first we thought, oh, this is all going to be bad. This is going to be terrible. We're going to, it's going to be like the bubonic plague. And so everybody went along with it. But now we're discovering that it hasn't been and it isn't. And it, uh, the death rates in Texas, at least, are much lower, about four to five times lower than the death rate from the flu. And yet people are scared to death and they have been uh, uh, browbeaten with this fear strategy 
for the last six months, and that destroys individuality and uh, responsibility and independent thought. But not these Jews, because they stayed true to the Word of God. They understood what God said, and they are not going to worship an idol. And so we read here these men that came forward, and they said to them, if you look at I want to read verse 11, verse 12. Uh, these men come forward, and they come to Nebuchadnezzar. Where do we see them? In verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. Now, what kind of people are those Chaldeans? These are the kind of people you had in Nazi Germany who, when they realized that they could steal the house next door and loot it, they called the Nazis, they called the Gestapo and said, we got Jews living next door, come and get them. Or they would find out, like what happened with the Ten Boom family in, in uh, Amsterdam, is that they ratted out the Ten Boom family because they were hiding and protecting Jews. And so all, the, all the, that family w- went to concentration camps. The father died. Uh, the other older sister died, and only Corey Ten Boom survived uh, survived the Holocaust. And you had people telling on each other. And you go to this practice within Russia under communism, where you rat out your neighbor, you tell on your neighbor, "Well, this neighbor's not doing this. This neighbor has a has a Russian flag. They still do this at home, and they do that at home." And they would tell on them. Next thing you know, the uh, KGB is coming to arrest them, and they are taken off to prison, and they go into the gulag. And this happened to tens of millions of people. And under Stalin, a minimum, they they think, they can't track it, you don't have the data, but somewhere between 30 and 60 million Russians were killed by the by the Soviet state under Stalin in that period between about the between 1930 and 1940 you know people go around calling calling say you don't like somebody you call him hitler hitler couldn't even get into the club that stalin and mao tung were members of uh, they killed uh, three or four or five times more of their citizens uh, than hitler did and many and and they were trained children i remember growing up in the cold war that my parents telling me that nobody has a right to know anything about us. If you're ever asked to fill out forms at school and they ask about, you know, what your father does or what kind of money we make, does your mother work, don't answer them because it's not their business because what happens in communist countries is this information goes on record and sooner or later somebody will may try to come along and use this against us. And this is what happened. And I, I remember them teaching me now, you have to recognize if, any, if this happens, then uh, you can't tell people what, you never tell people what happens in the home. You never talk about anything. You never admit anything because this is used. And we're seeing this today. You see people who personally confront people who don't have a mask on, and then they try to report it. They'll go to the manager of the store. They'll do something. They'll report on it. These, this is the same kind of character in those people who were ratting out the Jews and the 
um, and their parents and others in Nazi Germany and in the Soviet countries and in communist countries. And it's turning Americans against other Americans. We're not far from this. We're already ready. You have neighbors who, first thing they do, they see you walk outside and you don't have a mask on, they'll call somebody and report you. They're doing that. It's, it's just terrible. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get, uh, get reported by this self-appointed Gestapo, and they get dragged before Nebuchadnezzar. And they're told that there are certain Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. And what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He flies into a rage. He flies into a rage because he, as the state, demands this respect. This is what happens under totalitarianism. You get this inflated arrogance. In Daniel chapter 4 is where Nebuchadnezzar really loses it and God punishes him for his, for his arrogance. But for right now, the lesson is for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're brought before uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and they say, well, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Uh, it, it, we know we're not going to bow down because this is against the Torah. This is against the law. And if this is the case that you're going to put us in a fiery furnace, then our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. Now, see what they're saying is, first of all, God's able to deliver us. They don't know that he will. They don't know what's going to happen. It says God can deliver us, and he will deliver us from your hand, either one of two ways, miraculously, or he'll take us to heaven, one of those two ways. And he says, but if not, let it be known to you, O king. See, if not, God's not obligated to save us. In 99.9% of the time, 99999% of the time, God's not going to intervene miraculously in anybody, any of our lives. And there are hundreds of thousands of martyrs uh, down through the centuries who have obeyed God rather than the state. And that is what they were going to do. But in their case, God was going to make a point. Now, I have to fix this for just a second. I don't know what that's doing up, and I have lost my... my uh, there we go. Okay. They understand that the first, the foundational commandment in the Mosaic Law, you shall have no other God before me. If you don't have God and worship God, nothing else matters because there will not be any guarantee for national stability. Now, let's go from Daniel to Acts. Go from Daniel to Acts, and we're going to see an episode. We've covered this recently, I think, on, um, I think it was on Tuesday night, but we'll cover it again here uh, to make sure it's in this series. In Acts chapter 4, you have a situation of really the second great sermon that Peter, Peter preaches. And he and John are outside the temple, and they have... Uh, been uh, preaching about Jesus and in his name and telling the people, verse 12, there's no salvation in any other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so this creates uh, some turmoil there on the temple mount and the Sadducees send the temple guard out to arrest them 
And when they do so, they bring them be, be, before they are brought before the Sanhedrin, and then the Sanhedrin has to figure out what are we going to do with these guys now, because it's it's so well known we can't kill them, uh, but we have to stop this. And so in verse uh, eighteen, verse seventeen and eighteen, we read: This is the Sanhedrin talking, verse seventeen. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. In other words, they are prohibiting them from talking about Jesus and giving the gospel. Verse eighteen: So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. So that's the command from the human government. But Peter and John answered, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answered them and said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. In other words, you can decide what you're going to do. It's between you and the Lord, but as far as we're concerned, we can't avoid speaking about what we've been told. Now, they get beaten up, and they get sent back, and then a lot of things intervene, and then they get picked up again. And this time, this is in Acts chapter 5, and they're put on trial again, and the high priest rose up in verse 17, and all those who were with him, which were the sect of the Sadducees, the high priest and the, uh, and the um, uh, most of the, a lot of the Sanhedrin were Sa- Sadducees. A lot of the priesthood were Sadducees. And they were angry about them, and they laid hands on the apostles and put them in a common prison. And then they're going to be miraculously released by an angel that night, and this angel is going to open up the prison doors and say, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So Jesus has given them the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, and this angel from God has told them to go do this. Now, before anybody thinks, well, maybe if I see an angel and they tell me to not pay my taxes, well, wait a minute. First of all, go to prison. Second, when the angel breaks you out of prison and opens the prison door, then maybe you have the right to say something. But don't just make it up out of your imagination. So this is a miraculous event. This angel tells them to go and stand in the temple, and they do. And that really angers the the Sadducees and and the priesthood. And so they they are brought before the high priest again, and the and the Sanhedrin, and they say, did we not strictly command you not to teach in, his, in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. And Peter says, and he focuses it very well in this statement, we ought to obey God rather than men. When there's a direct conflict between a divine commandment and a uh, hu- human commandment from any authority, only when it's a direct command, not when it's some, some general principle or you just feel like, well, that's not really right, so I'm going to obey God or, and make it up. No, it's, it's really clear in all these examples, it's these precise commandments. And so God establishes government, but government has restrictions. 
and even obedience to government has exceptions. There are some people who teach, some Christians who teach, that no matter what the government tells you to do, you need to do it. And that's just as wrong. That is evil because that gives the, author- the government too much authority and gives them uh, too much responsibility. We get over into First uh, Peter, First Peter 2, uh, 13 and 14. And in 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, uh, Peter articulates the same thing that Paul does in Romans 13. Paul is writing early in the psycho Nero's reign, and Peter writes late in that reign. Both of them will end up being uh, murdered, being executed wrongly by, uh, by Nero. And so Peter writes, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as, and to those who are sent by him. That would be a police force. That would be other delegations, whatever it would be, the representatives of the government. And so, you know, one of the things that is in this current situation there are people who are just, uh, they, they are rebelling against the authority of the police. They want to defund the police when probably one police officer out of 20,000 is a problem. But they want anarchy. They want to destroy the country. They want to rebuild the country from the ground up. This is even part of uh, Biden's um, campaign is rebuild, rebuild. What do we need to rebuild? Let's just stick and be faithful to what's already there. I mean, this is a cry to completely destroy everything that has made America worth coming to and worth staying. And so um, they want to destroy authority. They have no respect. And so no person who is a thinking Christian can have anything to do with Antifa, uh, can't have anything to do with Black Lives Matter, because that's not just a slogan. It is a slogan developed by an organization that is Marxist that has stated on their website that they are against the nuclear family, which is divine institution number three. They are pro-LGBTQ. They are uh, all against heteronormative marriages, That means one man and one woman. So they're against divine institution number two. They're against the government. They are basically a terrorist organization. And you can go out on the Internet and you can find all kinds of videos of uh, Black Lives Matter people intimidating, attacking uh, numerous people. And you can see a lot of black people getting extremely mad at these agitators. In fact, uh, weekend, I think it was not this last weekend, but the weekend before, there were a number of people who were killed in, in Chicago, and there was a, a lot of looting in always the most expensive department stores uh, to get whatever it is they want under this so-called uh, rationalization of reparations, which is just a crock of nonsense. And what happened uh, after that is they're, uh, they're coming out into the black neighborhood, and all the people in the black neighborhood came out and said, go away. We don't want you. You're here just to cause all this trouble, and it just creates more trouble for us, and you don't really care about us. You don't show up when some uh, child is killed. Like the week before, there was some five-year-old child 
uh, killed and, and uh, on, on the street in the black community. You don't show up when these drug dealers are killing people and they're having these gang wars and, and killing innocent bystanders. You don't care about black lives. So it just shows the lie to the whole organization and it needs to be, no Christian can have anything to do with that because you're not honoring the king. This is what Peter goes on to say. This is the will of God that by doing good, well, you're not doing good when you validate or send money to an organization that promotes the destruction of private property, that, it's, that promotes violence, uh, that promotes the overthrow of the government. And that's exactly what they're doing. You're to, we're to honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Even when the king is a psychotic, crazy despot like Nero, you still show respect to the king. That doesn't mean you agree with them. That doesn't mean you like them, but you have to respect the office. When you, we quit respecting the office, then we're succumbing to the antinomianism of the enemy. So we go back to Romans 13, that we are to subject to government authorities in 13.5. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, that is, divine discipline, but also for conscience' sake. There's a lot of teaching in the Bible that talks about the importance of being obedient to the norms and standards in your soul, because if you don't, you're developing a form of rationalization and excusing yourself for violating your norms and standards. And even if your norms and standards are out of whack, when you create a pattern of rationalizing away your absolutes, then the next time, and you have a correct absolute that you shall not lie, then what do, you, what do you do? Well, nothing happened the last time. It's not going to be too bad this time. I'm going to I'm going to lie and get out of it. And so what you've done is you've created a pattern of just violating your conscience and becoming an anti, antinomianism. But in this passage, in Romans 13, 6, we read, For because of this, you also, because of what? Because you have to submit to the government. The government has the right and the authority to tax the citizens. This is legitimate. Because of this, Paul says, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers. Paying tax, taxes is legitimate, even when it, the, the laws may be egregious. Still that responsibility. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. The very thing he's talking about is order in the, the nation or the empire. Render, therefore, to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ had a little encounter with the uh, Pharisees and Herodians, and they were trying to trip him up as they were testing him not long before he went to the cross. This is during that time period early in the, um, the, the week before he went to the cross, and they come up with an idea, we're going to trip him up, we're going to get him in trouble with the masses, and we're going to set up a scenario where if he says one thing, he's going to uh, anger the government, and if he says the other thing, he's going to anger the citizens. And Jesus had this very sophisticated way of creating a, a third option. 
and wiggling around whatever trap uh, they were setting for him. So in verse 14, they say, Teacher, we know that you are true. In other words, we know you have integrity and you care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but you teach the way of God in truth. That's a lie. They don't believe any of that. You always have to watch out for people who are anti-God. You look at Antifa, you look at Black Lives Matter, you look at a lot of politicians, and you know from their life they don't care anything about God or God's word. And yet they will talk God all the time. And they will uh, camouflage themselves in robes of righteousness in order to get, to get people to vote for them. <clears throat> says, you don't <clears throat> regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this tax that they're talking about was an annual poll tax. It was uh, basically a head tax on every person, and it was demanded by the Roman emperor ever since uh, this, uh, after this rebellion that had occurred in A.D. 6, and at that point, uh, uh, Judea had become a Roman uh, province. And so this money went directly into the emperor's treasury. Now, this tax was unpopular among the Jews, first of all, because it was onerous, and they had all kinds of taxes being levied on them by, by the Romans. And so they tried to trap Jesus with this question in verse 15. Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Now, now, here's the issue. Uh, Jesus, first of all, knows that they are two-faced. They're hypocrites. They don't really care. They just want to trap him. And the issue of this head tax was to pay it with a Roman denarius, which was a small coin. And on this is an inscription and the face or the silhouette of, um, of the Roman emperor, of Tiberius Caesar. And so... The issue here is that uh, by using these Roman coins under Rome's authority, there were these Jews who were saying that this was a form of idolatry and that they should not pay it at all. And so you have this conflict, actually, between the Herodians and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were kind of, uh, well, we don't think it's a good idea, and the Herodians wanted all the taxes, and the Pharisees didn't want taxes. So Jesus says... Give me a denarius that I can see it. And so they gave him one, and now he's going to give him a little object lesson. And he says, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And so Jesus just answers them and says, well, if it comes from Caesar and it doesn't come from God, give it to Caesar. And he just avoids the whole trap. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And, and they're just left dumbfounded. Now, the other thing that comes out of this event is what Jesus is showing is that there are two realms of authority. There is a sphere of authority related to the state and to the government, and there's a sphere of authority related to religion, related to worship, related to Christianity, and that the government and has certain rights and certain privileges, and that we should pay taxes. But the government doesn't have a right to rule over the church or to over a religious institution because they have separate spheres 
of authority. And so the this is the foundation for what became known in church history as the doctrine of the separation of church and state, that each has a distinct uh, uh, sphere of authority. Now, back in Romans 13.4, we read that there is the part of the responsibility of the government is in, involves the taking of life in two areas, taking of life for capital crime and taking of life in warfare. And it is under this this. Uh, idiom of bearing the sword. The government bears the sword. The sword takes life. And so they have the responsibility to bear the sword and to execute judgment on those who practice evil. It's part of the responsibility of government to protect the citizen from evil, from those who are in extreme forms of criminality, even to the point of taking the life of those who do so. So So even though people will tell you, well, you can't go back to the Old Testament to find a basis for capital punishment. Well, it's right here in the New Testament as well. So it's all the way through Scripture. So the the authority is significant that God does give to the state. Now, there's certain responsibilities that the Bible talks about in relation to kings and in the Mosaic Law, which is not for Gentiles, not for the government today, but it shows a principle that the, that a good ruler is going to internalize the Word of God. And so, uh, even though there wasn't a king at that time, envisioning the fact that there would be a future king, the king was responsible to hand copy the law, the Torah, for himself, and then he was to read it all the days of his life to remind him that he wasn't the ultimate authority, that he was responsible to God. Although we know that all of the kings in the north were evil and they all fell into idolatry and they all decided they were going to be God and appoint a golden calf as the representative of God. And in the southern kingdom, there were only about five kings that were godly kings, and the rest of them were just as bad as the kings in the north. They didn't apply this. And when we have rulers that are not submissive to God, then we will have serious problems. When they reject the divine institutions, then they are going to have, uh, again, serious problems. So we're back to the problem of too much government as it's outlined in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And this is things that we have seen. I'm not going to go back through it again tonight. We just don't have time. But you see it's talking about how the national government will build a bureaucracy and a large government. And although it's become almost a cliche, when Ronald Reagan said it in the 80s, he was exactly right that uh, the solution isn't government. Government is the problem, not the solution. And that the, a smaller government, this is what was envisioned by the founding fathers, not a large government, but a small government. The larger the government, the less freedom people have and the, the less responsibility they have for their own lives. And yet part of our sin nature is we just as soon give responsibility to somebody else, or a lot of people are that way. They don't want to take responsibility for their own lives, so they'll, they'll buy the lie of socialism and communism that uh, the government can just uh, make money out of thin air and give you everything. And the result, every time it is tried, is that it completely fails because the government doesn't produce anything. People produce things. 
And when you look at this situation in 1 Samuel chapter 8, talking about how the government's going to take your sons and your daughters and it's going to appoint and put them in the military and it's going to take your daughters. Remember, 90% of what was of the work that was being done in Israel was being done uh, on the farm, on the land, and you had farmers who were working, and you had uh, you had people who were craftsmen, and they were working, and they would have their family and um, and and their children would participate in the in working the farm and also helping out. Uh, for example, with Joseph, the father of Jesus, Jesus would have been an apprentice from an early age, six or seven. He would have been. Uh, been trained in the carpentry work of, of his father. And so you get a big government, they start taking, they're, they're ta- stealing the laborers. And this is going to have horrible consequences economically. Be- the government is not a producer of anything. You have to let the people have freedom so that they produce, and that's what builds builds the economy, and a big government is just going to destroy it. And then the last thing we have to recognize is that the Bible recognizes the right of private ownership of property. One of these crazy Antifa people was quoted about three weeks ago saying, we need to abolish all private property. Well, if you abolish all private property, the only people that will have private property are some ruling elite. That's what always happens. And the masses return to slavery. Uh, private property is embedded within all of the law codes of Scripture. God gave land to Abraham, and he gave um, designated borders. We'll get into this next time. When God said in the Mosaic law, thou shalt not kill, I mean, excuse me, thou shalt not steal, it's very clear that it is, uh, you have to own property for somebody to take it from you. Ephesians 4.28 says, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor. See, what we should have laws and rules that encourage people to work, encourage people to labor, encourage people to be productive, and not just give them handouts. Uh, we should restrict welfare in a way that encourages people to get educated, uh, to go to class, to learn skills, to learn trades, to put them at work like they did uh, back in, in the 30s and the 40s, put them out working on the highway, picking up trash, but that a, a person to have pride in themselves uh, can't live on just handouts. That will destroy a person. They need to be responsible, first divine institution, and be required to do something in order to get their government check where it's not just a, a freebie. So we both parties fail in this completely. They want to... It, it, it increases their power to take care of people. Uh, Paul says in Second Thessalonians... Uh, for even, he says, even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. That's a divine principle. Nobody, if they're capable of working, nobody should be given anything. It destroys uh, their individual pride in who they are and as a, as a human being, and they just become lazy and irresponsible. 
Verse 11, Paul says, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but busybodies. So you have people who are not working, not doing anything. Somehow they're just on the government dole. Twenty years ago, we had, some of you know, uh, some of the, uh, a few people, can't think of Mark's last name right now, um, but he and some others went up to Portland with a lot of tracks, and they spent two or three weeks, and they had just thousands of runaway kids and drug addicts and people living on the streets and living in these uh, areas in Portland, the public parks, uh, witnessing to them. And the government there didn't do anything to encourage them to take ownership or responsibility for their own lives. And what's happening 20 years later? This is the rabble. See, these are like the busybodies. They're disorderly. They're a rabble. They have no responsibility. They're not invested in the country at all. They're not invested in the uh, productivity of the city. They just have gotten themselves in trouble as, as busybodies, and now they're becoming violent. And Paul says, now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. That's the responsibility. Now, some people think that sounds harsh, but those are the kind of people that spoil their children and raise people to be adults who can't take responsibility and ownership for their own lives. One of the worst things parents can do is give their kids everything. You can't do that from the early age. You have to give them responsibilities and tasks around the house. And they have to learn and recognize that there are things that, well, that's the way the world is. It, it's a fallen world, and you have to go to school, and I have to go to work, and uh, we have to cook food, and we can't just uh, do whatever we want to do. And you have to teach them those those things. And uh, my dad would never give me an allowance. When I was about maybe eight or nine, I asked him about that, and he said, Nobody in life will ever give you anything. You have to work for everything. So what I'll do is I'll give you some chores to do around the house, and if you do them, uh, then I will give you a certain amount of money uh, for, for doing those chores. And one of the things they had me do, because since my mother was in a, in a wheelchair, she couldn't do housework, so we always had a maid. And so during the week, the maid would take care of the house and everything, but on the weekends... Uh, she wasn't there. And so on Saturday and Sunday, my folks said, well, you need to straighten up your room, put everything away, make your bed, but you have to do it both Sunday, Saturday and Sunday. If you do it just on Saturday and then you don't do it on Sunday, you won't get anything. If you don't do it Saturday and you clean up your room on Sunday, you won't get anything. You have to do it both days and then we'll give you 50 cents. That's how long ago it was. That was a lot of money. You know, I'd make 75 cents if I cut somebody's yard. So that was, that was big money. And, uh, and then I started uh, cutting, cutting grass to earn extra money a couple of years later. And I talked to men my age, my age group, and they did the same kind of thing. My parents had plenty of money. They, my dad was a successful professional engineer. But I had to earn every single dime uh, and uh, they were always very gracious to me at times, but I had to demonstrate that I had learned those lessons of personal responsibility and to learn that there was no free lunch and that whatever happened, 
no matter how, even if everything fell apart, I was going to have to take care of myself. And those are important lessons for, for children to learn because when they grow up, if that's not embedded in them by the time they're 15, they'll never survive. They'll never survive. Okay, next time we'll come back and look at nationalism. Father, thank you for this time to study these things this evening and to get into your word and see the importance of government, the respect for government, even for those for whom we don't respect individually, but we must respect the office. Christians must be gracious and kind even to those who, uh, even in government, may become their enemy, uh, that we are grace-oriented and that we treat them, we do not return evil for evil. Father, help us to see a transformation in this country, to be part of the light to this wicked and perverse generation. Father, we pray that you'd be gracious to us and that those who are would oppose all these divine institutions and those who would uh, destroy the freedoms of this country. We pray that their schemes, their foils, that, that their schemes would be foiled, and that all of their manipulations and illegal activities and voter fraud and everything else would be put to naught by your sovereign intervention. And we pray that we might continue to enjoy our freedom and liberty, that this land may be a land where the word of God goes forth both here and abroad. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.